You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to now uh, transition to a part of time that I get to the privilege of leading us through, and that is that we get to open the Bible together. So if you have a paperback Bible or the tr- one in the tray in front of you, or if you've got a smart device, make your way to Matthew 21. Matthew, that is the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. That word gospel simply means good news. And those first four Gospels, or the good news of Jesus teaching his perfect life, his death and his resurrection, are accounted there by eyewitnesses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, over the last several uh, or last year and a half, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in what is the last most significant section of the Gospel. That is, up to this point, Matthew, in the first 20 chapters or so, has covered roughly 20 years. Actually, for the first, uh, for the first couple of chapters of, of the New Testament, it is of the New Testament, of the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, He covers the entire life of Jesus, and then the next 18 chapters covers about 30 years of his life. If you want to zoom out even further, if you include the genealogy at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has covered thousands of years over the course of these first 20 chapters, and now, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, everything slows down, and the last nine chapters are devoted to one week in the life of Jesus. Everything slows down and becomes painfully, uh, painfully slow as it, as it sequentially walks through every single thing that Jesus began to teach and do in that very last week of his life. Now, in this movie, as I've shared before, this is like uh, the moment in the movie where, the, where you go into slow-mo, uh, where the music changes and you see details that maybe you wouldn't have other seen at full motion. And that's with a purpose here for Matthew. That is that what's about to take place is incredibly important. Now, as we've seen, and I don't mind inviting you just to kind of flip back as I give you kind of a, a, a wrap-up, this is a turning point, not only in the, the sequence of events, but a turning point in the way that Jesus is interacting. So if you want to, you can go back to the very first verse of Matthew chapter 21, if you're looking at that chapter, and the very first verses is now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage. That's significant. The last week of Jesus' life will all take place here in Jerusalem or in this area. But, as we saw even last week, something else took place, starting in verse 23. And for the next chapter and a half, if you look at verse 23, it says, and when he entered the temple. So he he comes in, announces uh, announces his presence, uh, overturns the temple, but then this next little episode takes place in what we'll just describe as uh, disputes that take place in the temple. And you'll see this all the way to the end of chapter 22. Uh, concluded by Jesus kind of uh, uh, like a, a crescendo of woe and, and, and conviction that Jesus begins to speak to these people in the 23rd, cha- 23rd chapter. So where we find ourselves here is in the middle of one of the many disputes that Jesus has. Now it's a turn in the story because up to this point, Jesus has said be very secretive when he would heal or when he would do some things. He said don't tell anyone. They didn't listen to him. Uh, but he said don't tell them because ultimately he didn't want the, the narrative getting out that he had come only to heal or they did only come to teach. But instead, now that he has come to do what he has come to do, he says tell everyone. And he publicly begins to dispute with people. They throw a celebration, and, and, and you would think, is they're happy? Oh, yeah, Jesus is here. It's going to be great. What we find is actually quite the opposite. Jesus begins to pick fights with every single person that he encounters from here on out. I say that because this is exactly what happens when a Lord comes in and claims lordship. And we're meant to see this abrasive and confrontational nature and receive it ourselves. After all, one of the, one of the ways we can unhelpfully paint a picture of Jesus is that we can talk about his death as though he was some hapless victim, that he's caught up in something that he had no control over. Now, on one hand, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest injustice that has, ever, that has ever taken place. The most innocent and righteous person in the world was betrayed, was betrayed uh, uh, in a, in a, in a made-up mock court and in a, in a gross miscarriage of justice. He's crucified. In that sense, we would say he, he was punished for something that he did not do. And yet, on the other hand, what we'll find here is he was punished for something he absolutely did. That is that he begins to confront people and begins to speak to people 
as though he is God, for which he will be accused of blasphemy. Now, all of that sets the stage for a series of encounter or a series of disputes he has. We saw last week he he begins this conversation with these people as a way of cleansing the table, disputing or cleansing the temple, disputing, saying, "Look, I am the Lord of this temple. I'm the owner. I get to move furniture around." And then, as a setup in verse 18, he curses a fig tree uh, as a picture of his dispute and his ability to judge as he pleases, because the fig tree advertised that it had fruit, but it did not. After that, he, he disputes with the. The, the chief priests and the elders in the temple in verse 23, people who were advertising to have authority, and yet they had rejected the authority of God from John the Baptist's practice of a baptism of repentance. Side note here, this is why we are Baptist as a church. We are credo-baptistic. That is, we believe that baptism is a picture of matched up with repentance. Uh, now, now, I'll tell you this, like, we're Baptists, but we're not mad about it. Now, if you have any background in the church, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you probably know some that are. If you don't have any, if that's not a funny joke to you, praise God, you don't have any of that baggage. But it's, this is, our practice is simply our way of grappling with what Jesus says here. To claim to know God, but to reject the messenger, John, that comes and says, come, be made new by repenting. Because one is coming who will clear the threshing floor himself. Then you see uh, a parable he tells to illustrate of someone who's advertising obedience. Two sons, one saying he wouldn't obey and one saying he would, and he challenges instead of one of them obeying and doesn't, and the other one who doesn't turns, changes his mind. You get a picture of him confronting each and every one of these surface-level advertisements that is mismatched with actual behavior. Now, the language we call that is hypocrisy. And it will be the topic of the 23rd chapter. If you want to skip there, it shows up multiple times, and Jesus just says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. It gets worse. But what we find here is that he says, uh, he, he points out something, that there's a, a disconnect with what people say they are on the surface and what they really believe and how they live. And Jesus begins to confront that. So much so that he tells an even more stark and dark parable, beginning in verse 33. Let's read it together. Here are another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And when they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, "He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons." Jesus said to them, "Have you never read in the scriptures the stone?" that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Each of the series of conversations up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew has begun with a question, and so I've tried to do the same, and I want to begin a conversation about this passage of Scripture with a couple of questions. Who in your life has the right to judge? 
Who in your, who in your life has, has the right? You give them permission to judge, to pass judgment, to evaluate that which is good and that which is bad. You enjoy their judgment, and you, you're happy when they even judge your actions and thoughts. Who in your, right, who, who in your life has the right to judge? Side note, if you can't think of someone, it's you, okay? Because you clearly dis- have discerned that you alone have the Anyway, maybe a different way to answer this question. Who in your life has the right to be angry? Jesus comes with a series of parables, and these parables are no longer instructive necessarily about something that might be a little bit more abstract. They become a picture of judgment. Each one of these parables that he begins to share from here on out for the next several chapters even, are parables of judgment. And you even see here a question, who has the right to judge, leads to a a, a kind of a a justified action, starting in verse 41, in which the people realize, yes, this, whoever, whoever this person you're talking about, Jesus, this person is going to be the subject of righteous wrath. Who in your life has the right to be angry? This could be one of the most powerful questions you ask yourself. There is more than meets the eye when you think about who in your life has the right to be angry. Who has justified anger? What politician or political party has the right to be angry? What country, nationality, ethnicity has the right to be angry? And how you answer those kinds of questions is a window into what you believe about the order of the world. Even so much so that the parable poses something to us with respect to someone who has the right to judge and someone who has the right to execute righteous wrath and anger. He's the owner. So here's the last way to ask this question that connects us to this parable most clearly and directly. Who's the owner of your life? Who's in charge of your life? Who makes the decisions? Who determines what happens? Who in your life says what stays and what goes? This parable here, in one of the many disputes, is a turning point where Jesus, in an escalating fashion, begins to challenge those who are in authority. As they question his, and he demonstrates his own. Jesus comes in these parables to demonstrate God's judgment and even his own judgment as he judged the fig tree that was fruitless, calling these sinners to become aware of, to be warned by the coming judgment of God. And we're here in the second of those parables. And in this parable, the key character that represents for us God is known as a master, as we see here, the very first verse of the passage, verse 33. Master, that word is, is the word for Lord, quite literally. And then the next time it describes uh, who this character is, who this person is, it's, he's described as the owner, the one who owns the wine press, the vineyard in its entirety. And we're posed with a question here that this is the story, evidently for Jesus, of ultimate reality, and we're left wondering, who's in charge of it? Who owns this? Who runs this? And Jesus goes right after their answer on the surface with a way of contemplating what they really believe. He confronts hypocrisy and repentance as we saw, with, with repentance as we saw last week. Fundamentally showing us that the opposite of hypocrisy is, in fact, repentance. And Jesus comes to root out that hypocrisy and repair it. Hypocrisy, mind you, is one of the most devastating things, or at least one of the things that frustrates us the most. Uh, I, I would argue this, this, is, this is one of the ways to explain 2020 and COVID. It's hypocrisy. Because every single one of us, we're, we're posed with a, a really difficult set of circumstances, and none of us answered perfectly Right? Every one of us had some sort of hypocrisy in us. And we could smell it. We could smell it when it was on the news. We could smell it in each other. You're like, well, is this the worst thing ever? And I should never go outside again? Or is this not a big deal? And, you, right? and it's like, well, yes and no. And we all felt the inconsistency that we would call hypocrisy and we hated it. You probably smell this if you've ever had a bad interaction with the local church. Most people would say the church is full of hypocrites. 
and they're surprised when I don't disagree. The church is absolutely full of hypocrites, and we've got room for more. Welcome, right? Because the basic human condition is this disconnect between what we believe or idealize or wish were true and what is actually true. What you wish were true about yourself, what you aspire to be, what you wish the world would be like, and then what you really are like, and what the world really is like. And Jesus comes to hold up the mirror for all of these people and for us to see the disconnect and let us see it for what it is, an irreparable human condition that he has come to redeem. So I want to walk through this parable, uh, this picture of Jesus confronting their hypocrisy with, with what I believe are good principles to help us not only understand who Jesus is and what he's done, but it might even help you just get through the rest of this day. The first thing you see in the first little bit of this parable is this. God is the generous owner who gives abundant blessings. Here another parable. Verse 33 says, there was a master of a house, and listen to how this master uh, arranged the vineyard. Planted the vineyard? Check put a fence around it for its safety, dug a wine press so that it could process and you didn't have to take the fruit elsewhere, had everything it needed to process its own fruit, and then built a tower. All right, now it's got uh, the ability to protect itself, not only, with its, uh, not only with its fences and walls, but with its ability to see and uh, presumably some sort of strategic safety that existed, and then put people in charge of it, leased it out to tenants. Now, the language here is especially important for us. You'll find it uh, pretty powerfully visible in the Old Testament, especially in two different places. One is in Deuteronomy 6, close to what we call the Shema, Hear, o Lord, or Hear, o Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But immediately following the call for families and for groups of people, the community of God's people, to remind one another of God's blessing, he says, here's why. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to deliver you from slavery, and then you're going to move into a place. And here's what you're going to find when you move into that, that land that I've promised you. You're going to live on land that's fertile and you didn't cultivate it. You're going to begin to take, you're going to begin to take over wine or vineyards that you did not plant Someone else planted them. And you're going to begin to take over things that you did not establish. And I'm going to give them all to you. And they are all to be a reminder that I am the master. I am the Lord. I am the owner. The next time you see this is in a prophetic vision of Isaiah in chapter 5. Where Isaiah says to the people speaking for God that Israel, God's special people, is that vineyard. And even though that vineyard was set apart by God for a special purpose, that vineyard began to rebel against him. And we find, I believe, one of the most confrontational truths that you can see here. It may not seem like it. God is the generous owner who gives abundant blessings. God gives everything these people need. God provides everything, every single bit, every single benefit that these tenants were, were enjoying were the benefit of someone else's labor, the master's labor, the Lord's labor, the owner's labor. It was the owner's investment. It was the owner's capital. It was the owner's work. And herein lies a strange paradoxical confrontation. God is the generous owner who gives abundant blessing. God owns everything. That may not seem like a big deal, but this language is especially important. Everything is from God, and everything is a gift. And that really bothers us. We would much rather be the owners ourselves. And that may seem like a benign platitude. Oh, God is the owner. He's the generous giver of all good gifts. And you might even nod. Oh, that's great. But the parable tells us what we really do. We're infuriated by it. And we hate any reminder that we are not the owner. We hate it. It infuriates us. Now, maybe you're a kind and polite Midwesterner and you would never say that. But the angst that we all live under, down deep, this feeling that we live in, a, in an irreparable situation in which things we wish were better are not, and even our own selves, we don't measure up to a standard that we wish we did. There's a disconnect, and it's because we are out of control. We don't actually have lordship over the things we have lordship over. 
And there are powerful reminders that come daily or generationally that point to this. Now, the, the powerful thing here is one of the ways as you kind of think through some of the principles this parable illustrates for us, uh, I, I'm going to give you a couple little tests along the way that will help you think like, hey, I mean, am I seeing what Jesus is pointing at here? And, and, and one of the things that, that I, I think if you, if you really push this to its limit, it will, will be a confrontation that Jesus means for it to be, which explains the anger of these tenants in this parable, is that if everything is from God and everything is a gift, then we owe him everything and he can demand anything from us. Because after all, if there are some things that you have earned, if there are things that you have worked for, if there are things that you have cultivated and established, well, then someone, by extension here, God, can't tell you what to do with them. Because after all, they're yours. But, Think about the powerful imagery of the Old Testament, the story of God's redemptive purpose in the world throughout the Bible that's illustrated in this picture of God as the master and owner. If God is the owner, then he can demand anything he wants. Now you begin to feel uncomfortable, right? Uh, Again, this is the most beautiful part of the scripture, I think, is how honest it is. Uh, it, it lays on full display. If you're like, why would they kill Jesus? Who would do that? And as you feel that angst, uh, it built up like, well, who, who can really tell me what to do, right? Now you get it. Now you, now you, oh, I get it. Now I know why they did that. That makes sense. I begin to understand that. Here's an illustration that, or a way, a way to kind of illustrate this even, even for us is that we are tempted then to sin where we think God is holding out on us. And so I want to help you, uh, in in light of this parable Jesus gives us, to see the character of God and the nature of our own lives. The place where you're most destructive, the the place where you're most tempted to sin is going to be likely connected to a place where you don't think God is good. Where He's not giving you what you're owed. That God isn't really kind and He hasn't really blessed you in some way. And and here's what I want to, like, you can see this. If, If you think like, well, you know, God's plan for sexual pleasure is no good. He's holding out. We know, I know a better way. I, 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 have my own, I have my own understanding. God's holding out on me. I actually know what's better. I own my own gender, sexuality, my life. You get the idea? And then we'll do whatever we want to, and it will justify it because after all, God's not very good, and I know better than him. And I don't want you to simply go like, well, man, that's really dysfunctional. I should stop doing that thing. I want you to see what's even underneath it. It's a desire to be the owner and overthrow the owner himself. And that place where you're tempted to sin, it isn't just that you're dysfunctional in some sort of behavior. It's that you don't really believe that God owns you and everything else. And wherever you, right now, if you're like, where do you feel like you're missing out? Where do you feel like there's a, a, a deficit in your life? Where do you feel like there's something missing? There's something out of place? And on one hand, we mourn and lament that, but on the other hand, see it for what it is. That is going to be the place. It's the place where you're going to be most tempted to sin. You're going to take matters into your own hands because as far as you're concerned, it's your life. This is the place where you need to take over for where God has failed. And see that for what it is. A desire to overthrow the owner. We're going to be tempted to sin where we think God is somehow holding out on us. Next thing you see in the parable, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, persistent and patient toward his people. Look at his response to the rebellion. They don't want to be tenants. They want to be the owner. And so when the season to, uh, to, to harvest draws near, he sends servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. He's an investor after all. He's going to collect what, his cut of what he owns. And, and he sends them. And the tenants, not liking that, take the servants and then you see another powerful image that's, that's replete with meaning all the way back to the Old Testament. One, they beat. Two, they killed. And then three, they stoned. Now, that's interesting because stoning would have been a, uh, think of a, 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 a practice of God's people to cast out or to, in this case, to execute people for rebelling against God in some sort of blasphemous, sacrilegious way. And that's ironic because it says they killed and then it says they stoned. And you would think like, well, what's, that's the same thing. Why would, you, why would you say that two different ways? Well, again, this parable is replete with meaning. 
That is, the idea here is the, the tradition you can see in, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that the people of God were, were regularly prophetically warned that whenever God sent messengers to them, again, to remind them they're not the owner, it infuriated them, and they had a tradition of, or at least a, I say tradition, that's, that's, that's not the right way to say it, they had a habit of killing and rejecting God's prophets. You can read through the entirety of the Old Testament, and every single prophet kind of ends with a pretty miserable life. Like, no one, right? Everybody wants to be like, I have a prophetic voice. And I'm like, are you being persecuted for it? No. Or like, are you, are you willing to like live without air conditioning? No. Okay. You don't have a prophetic voice. The tradition of the prophets is to speak against something and then to pay the penalty for it. To, 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 in this sense, the tradition of the, I say tradition, again, that's not the right, that's not the right way to say it. The habit of, the custom of these people was regularly to rebel against not only God, but the messengers that he sent. And yet what happens? Verse 36, you think to yourself, well, one messenger they, keep, they beat, the other one they killed, the other one they stoned, like stoned being like a religious kind of killing. So they would be like, oh, these are people that are killing in some sort of religious, tra- religious tradition. Surely the master will give up on that and start to enact justice. Nope, verse 36. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. So you see the gracious kindness of the master to give these people ample opportunity, ample opportunity to begin to function as the master had created things to function. Okay, you're right, master. Now that you've sent us another messenger, okay, We'll stop. We'll stop killing all the other messengers. We'll start letting you in on the fruit that you have a right to. Think of another way to maybe, uh, maybe to think about this is we are tempted to sin where we don't like what God has said. We are tempted to sin. I, this, I would just say this, like, if you think about all of the places in, in the Scripture that talk about who God is and how we live in light of that. If you were to pick out the top list of those things that you don't agree with, right? You have, you're, like a, you're like a trained lawyer when it comes to those things. You can justify how they're not real, they don't apply, they're outdated, and they, don't, they certainly don't have any hold on you, right? Those are the places you're going to be the most tempted to sin. Because down deep, you think you're the owner. And you get this picture of redemptive history the listeners would have begun to understand, oh, he's talking, oh, it's like he's giving a metaphor for the whole of redemptive history, that God gave these people deliverance and a promised place to flourish. They rebel against him, and God in his kindness keeps calling them to himself. And every single episode, you think, this is surely the last. <laughs> this is surely, we're, uh, surely we're at the point now where, where God goes, that's enough, and just wipes the slate clean and starts over. And yet, God continues to send messengers, kind words, come, come back, come back to, come back to me, the Father sends his messengers to say. And so, we're going to be tempted in this particular area to think that what God is saying is not really good for us. And we'll hate any messenger that comes along. We'll be tempted to sin because after all, under the surface there, not just that we don't, like, not that we just want to live our own way, but even worse, we think we're the owner. We think that what we have to say is more important, and thus we reject what God says to us. This is the nature of humanity. Again, I want to encourage you, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian and, and you find some of the claims of Christianity to be absurd, uh, to be weird or difficult, I, 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 I'm so grateful you're here. In many ways, you might see this more clearly than the rest of us who might have become accustomed, accustomed to those things. They are absurd. They are difficult. They are painful. And yet, in that, you see the escalating tension between Jesus coming as Lord to a people who will reject him and crucify him, and at the same time, you see the very heart of humanity. And, I, I, and this, is the, this is the coolest part. I, this is why I, I want to compel you to trust the Scripture. There's no, other, there's no other book that is as honest about humanity as the Bible, and it's honest like, hey man, you ever notice how we really mess stuff up? Uh, and, and almost every other, every other like, kind of literature is like, yeah man, that's terrible. We should do something about that. And the Bible's like, nope, you can't. It's worse than you think. 
And so, like, see this. If there's a place where you think, like, man, this thing that Christians believe over here is really wild. I don't know what to do about that. See that for what it is. That's a place where, I promise you, you think you're the owner. Join the club. Because look at what he tells us next. Sin is the absurd attempt by human beings to overthrow God's ownership. Every single time the owner, master, sends the messengers, every single time the tenants kick them out, beat them, kill them, stone them. And even, all we know is they keep on doing it. I say absurd here because, right, you might have heard that, that saying like insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, but, right, expecting different results. And that's what sin does. Every, that's what sin does. Sin has the, the, just an amazing power to convince you this time it's going to work. <laughs> like, like, hey, this time when you play owner over this particular area of your life and you rebel against what's good for, for God's glory, for your flourishing and human flourishing, this time it's going to work out great. That's what sin whispers in your ear every single time. Oh, and it's so believable, isn't it? Doing the same thing over and over again. Expect, or you, get, you get the idea? That, that's the absurdity of sin. And, and this is where the parable starts to turn absurd. You think like, what? They keep doing this? But notice what's really at stake. Every single messenger comes to them, and every single person that comes to remind them that they're not the owner makes them angrier and angrier. And in it, you see the absurdity of sin. I say absurdity like, after all, like, I, um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a homeowner in the room, um, and so I'm an owner in that sense. Not really the bank is the owner, but for the purpose of this, I'm the owner. Um, don't be impressed by that. I, I bought a house in Sioux Falls back before they cost a bunch of money. So the rest of you, I assume, are all independently wealthy for living here. So, uh. But I wasn't always that. I used to be a tenant. I was a tenant in my parents' house for the first uh, significant chunk of my life. And every time that you're a tenant, it comes with a series of like advantages and disadvantages, right? I didn't have to pay any bills. That was amazing. Uh, but I had to be home at a given time. That was not that cool. And I regularly thought I was the owner and thought I knew better than the owner and didn't do that. You get the idea. Uh, but then I, and then I was a, a tenant in, in college and in graduate school. And again, advantages and disadvantages. Privileges that come, and, and yet privileges that are only held by the owner. I didn't ever have to mow the lawn. <laughs> I mean, that was great. I didn't even have that gig when I was a tenant in my father's house, right? And I didn't have to clean up anything. I didn't, like when, when an appliance breaks, not my problem, owner's problem. Get the idea? Uh, but also there's these rules, you're like, I, and one of them is, uh, for example, when I lived in, I lived in, I was a tenant, I don't know about you, I was a tenant in, in places that were all made out of cinder block, uh, is like, I mean, just not a lot of windows and a lot of cinder block. That was the, that was, that's the kind of place I was living on about you, like dorm rooms and apartments that were built as bomb shelters uh, or something like that. You get the idea? And, and one of the main things is don't drill holes in the wall. And I still remember when I was in college, I showed up with a, I mean, cinder block, and most people wouldn't do that. I showed up with a hammer drill and a, and a hammer drill bit, and a, I mean, just bored some holes in the wall and hung up some shelves to set up a great, uh, Halo video game, you know, kind of arena, if it, as it were. Because you put all your stuff up there. You get the idea? But I wasn't allowed to do that. Now I filled the holes with some putty. You get the idea. But think of it as like, that's a privilege that only the owner really gets to have. And you feel the tension there. And, in this sense, sin is the absurd attempt to pretend that you're the owner. Because after all, for some of you in the room, hear the absurdity of this picture. If the next time rent were due, and again, if you're not an owner, or if you're not, not a tenant and you're an owner and you have a, a mortgage payment, this could apply to you as well. Um, but I assume you still also pay taxes. Imagine if rent was due this next month and, and you beat up the mailman. And then thought to yourself, well, that does it. Solve that problem, right? <laughs> Not to pay. We're done with rent. Took care of it, right? 
Right? Imagine someone calling to collect on a bill, and you beat them up, or worse, killed them. You killed the, a person from the collection agency, and then in your own head thought, fixed it. You get the idea? It's absurd. It's insane because it didn't solve the problem. In fact, it escalated it. In fact, whatever, whatever the owner, whatever the, you know, the collector was, however, whatever they thought about you before, oh, whoa, now they think worse. Now they're even more angry. Right? Now they're even more frustrated. And so see in this parable the picture of the absurdity of sin, that we regularly rebel against the Creator thinking that we know better and genuinely believing that it is going to fix the problem. Over and over, and you get the idea? I want you to see the absurdity of sin because this, this, the story is not the most absurd just yet. It gets even more absurd. This is the point where you think the master, the owner, whatever his next move is, his move is going to be retribution. It's going to be justice. If this story was written by you or by me, the very next line, the very next verse is, and then the master came and wiped the place out, right? Like mowed down all of the tenants, held everyone to it. You get the idea? Like the deepest instinct for justice at this point is stoked in us. When you see the absurdity of these people trying to overthrow the owner. But I want you to see something. The only thing more absurd then our rebellion against the owner is the grace that the owner shows. And grace, my friend, is the absurd response of the master sending his son in response to the people's rebellion. This is the point where you're like, well, this is where the owner comes in. He, he, he starts over. And what does he do? What does he do? He sends his own son. After countless attempts, right? You, you can hear the owner saying, I know better, do your own thing, forget that guy, let's do whatever we want. The owner steps out in an act of immense grace. Absurd grace. I say absurd. You saw this when we were walking through the Gospel of John. John 3.16 uh, a, a verse that's popularized because it's a powerful summary of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, right? That any who would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Now, that sounds quaint and nice, but notice the comparison that's set up that we often overlook. God loved the world that he traded his son. All right, imagine you owed me money and I sent people and you abused them. You killed the people to collect on the debt that, that I was trying to collect, Right? The last person I send to you, you who've shown yourself to be untrustworthy, violent, awful to deal with, and just frankly probably deserve to be in prison, the last person I'm going to entrust to your care is one of my daughters. And now you get it. How absurd must this kind of grace be? Look at the lengths that this master will go to not to wipe them off the planet. See for just a moment the great lengths that this master will extend himself, sacrifice himself in order to not exact justice that they absolutely deserve. And when you see that and you see its absurdity, now you're beginning to understand. Grace is the only thing more absurd than our sin. That the master who rightly has the privilege unquestionably justified in being angry and exacting vengeance and executing justice goes to insane, absurd lengths to show these people more mercy and give them more chances. One way to summarize it is this. These people didn't want to be reminded that they were the owners. And the more that the people reminded them that they were not in charge, the more angry they became. And if there was one person, above all, who would remind them that they're not the owner, it would be the son. After all, they even say, you, you, you hear them kind of conspire, 
let's, you get their motives. Let's get his inheritance. You get it? Like, let's get, what's, let's get what belongs to the owner. Let's, this is how we're going to get it. And I want, I want you to see this for what it's worth. This is, this is Jesus speaking prophetically about his own betrayal and his own death, his own crucifixion. He's giving a prediction. This is why, he says, because I, more than anyone else, remind you that you are not God. More than anyone else, Jesus comes to remind us that we are not what we think we are. He comes to heal and restore, reminding us of how broken we really are. I've said this before kind of jokingly, right? Like, to receive a gift, you have to accept the insult. Any sort of gift that you receive, you have to painfully admit that you didn't have it or that you wanted it and you're grateful to have it. Otherwise, you can't receive it. That includes even good gifts, like someone today might give you a breath mint, right? And, and, right, and, and you get it. Like, to receive the gift, you'd be like, thank you? To receive the gift means that you don't have what you need. And so also here, the gift giver, that is God, comes and Jesus reminds us in his healing and his teaching, but mostly in his confronting that we need not just some help and a good teacher, but a savior is one of the most offensive things to our nature. One of the ways we stumble over this, after all, look at the, look at the way that Jesus begins to confront them. Um, when you tell a bunch of people whose whole job is to read and study the scriptures, look in verse 42, have you never read in the scripture? I mean, that's, that's, that's combative right there, okay? It's just like, just, uh, that's, it's like asking an accountant. Haven't you, can't you count? Can't you read? You get the idea, like someone who's like, oh man, they, this is what their job is, to read the scriptures. Like, have you never? Are you not, are you, like, are you not seeing this? Are you, are you dense or something? You get the idea? And then he quotes to them Psalm 118, the stone, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you the kingdom of God. And now you get in the picture of the redemptive history, right? God has now sent prophets so that these, these servants, these people, these religious leaders whose job it was to care for the vineyard, to care for and love and steward God's people and God's purpose in the world, had begun to act like they were the owner. And so therefore, he says, what do you think will happen to them? And they, you, you, can, you can get the idea like they're gritting their teeth. They're like, well, I mean, it's probably going to come wipe them out, right? It's probably going to take away what they have and give it to someone else. Beginning to get the hint that he's talking about them. And he says, have you never read, this is actually not an accident, this is exactly a part of God's redemptive purpose. And here we are in the redemptive history that Jesus has come and he is now the cornerstone, even though it was a stone that was rejected. And it's marvelous. It's absurdly marvelous. And then he tells him, look, this is going to be taken away from you. God's kingdom is no longer going to be your stewardship. God's kingdom is now going to be stewarded by those who repent. God's kingdom is now going to belong to the people who know that they're not the king. God's kingdom is now going to belong to all the people who can admit, even, even in frustration, that they're not the owner, but they're just stewards of what the owner has entrusted to them. That he is the one who gives. From him we receive. You see their awful motives even at the end. They, they get the idea, okay, I know, they're, I know they're talking about it. I know Jesus is talking about us. And they wish they could do something about it, but what? They're terrified of what other people think. So let me give you just a few, like a, maybe a litmus test or two. If you think you're the owner and begin to stumble over what Jesus claims, namely that he is the owner, he is the true and better cleanser of God's people and the temple, he is the means of and the measurement of justice and God's wrath, this is what it will look like a few different measurements. One, this is a call back to the previous passage. How do you think about tax collectors and prostitutes? That is, he says in the previous passage, look, one of the ways you know that you don't get the kingdom and you think you're an owner is that the tax collectors and prostitutes, this would have been the worst that they could think of at the time, are going to get into the kingdom before you because they at least can see the ways that they've been living godless lives. They at least can admit, yeah, I was doing that because I think I'm God, right? I was doing that because I, really, I don't really care what God says. I want to do whatever I want. Maybe someone in your room and the room can, can relate to this. So maybe the first litmus test is, how do you deal with people who are a mess? 
How do you think about people's messes? Are you grossed out by people who make mistakes that you would never make? People who are tempted in ways that you'll never be tempted? Do you find yourself having disdain or having a judgmental attitude towards people who struggle in, in, in ways that you evidently are gifted and blessed and do not? How do you think about them? Do you look down on them? You're acting like an owner. You're missing the, king, the kingdom. You're missing the kingdom, the kingdom in which we realize God has supplied all things, including grace. There is nothing you've done to build this kingdom. There's nothing you'll do to save it. And one of the ways you know this is how you deal with other people who are a mess. Here's one of the second ways. How do you deal with your own mess? How do you relate to God in your own mess? Do you find yourself, do you find yourself really loving God and thinking God is amazing whenever you're killing it and you're doing all the things that you know you've expected you would do? Do you find yourself retreating from prayer, from Scripture, from God's people, from anyone who might instruct and care for you whenever you don't think you're doing a good job? Friend, you're stumbling over the rock of offense. You're acting like an owner. Because after all, if I were to, you know, you know, if I were to, let me speak for just a minute to all the people who are a mess and know it, right? All you in the room, you're a mess. You make, you make foolish, godless decisions, and you're like, yeah, I know I did that. I totally did that. I was like, man, that was... I think I know better than God, and that was a bad, like, okay, welcome, welcome, you're a mess, I'm a mess, hypocrisy is to pretend that we're not, right, and, and look, what, behold our God, when these people were at their worst, the master sent his best, I love the term, I mean, any English, any English teacher is incredibly frustrated by this whole passage because it's a mixture of all sorts of metaphors. Did you catch that? Um, there's, it's like we're talking about a vineyard and then we're talking about a stone and a corner now with corners. What are, like, it, so if you're an English major in the room, you're like, come on, like, just pick one, right? And he just turns up the narratives uh, or it turns up all these different kinds of uh, 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 metaphors like, 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 like cards. You're like, what? I, that's a shocker. Did you notice one of the metaphors that switched? At first, we're talking about a master and an owner. Did you get that? A master and an owner. Very good. And then what metaphor changes? How does the, how does the narrative all of a sudden shift? How does Jesus start to introduce us to, to, this, to this master owner? He tells us he's what? The master owner is also a father. And if you're a mess in the room, that's incredibly comforting. Now, let me take you to the rest of you. All of the rest of you, that you know those people are a mess. It will be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for you to get into kingdom. Because you think you're an owner. You think that by means of your own will, I don't know, I don't know what it is for you, like, like, it's one thing to think you're an owner by just rebelling against the order of the king, master, father, altogether. But there's another way to rebel and act like you're the owner, and that's to establish your own order. And this is a warning to the most religious, the most upright. The challenge he's offering, the warning he's offering is for the people in the room who would see themselves as not need, right? Because after all, they're like, why do we need to repent? Like, I mean, the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes, they need to repent. What do we need to repent for? Why are you coming out? And, and now you get it. That's what an owner would say. What, what, what do I owe to God? What would I, what would I possibly uh, need to change about my life? And in that, now you see it. Now you begin to see the ways that we're tempted to be an owner. When we think someone else's mess makes them somehow outside of the reach of God's care, we realize and testify in that that we are, that we have not understood it. We have not received it. And I want to tell you the very same thing that I told everyone else. Behold our God. When these wicked tenants were at their worst, the Father sent his best. When they were at their absolute worst, when they wanted to be in control and own their lives, he sent them the best. And notice the powerful picture here. Jesus comes and says to them, I'm not just the son of the king. I'm not just the son of the father. I'm not just the son of the master. I'm also the cornerstone of the temple. I'm the cornerstone of the new kingdom that is coming. I am, I am the central piece. Now, th that, that's a language we don't use. Um, I use laser levels if you're 
uh, like to build stuff because there's no other way other than like a level or a box level to make things straight. Those didn't exist. Shocker, history lesson, uh, in uh, 2,000 years ago. And so what, was, what, was, what served as the best plumb line uh, was to take, at the very beginning of any sort of construction project, to take the most square, the most perfect, and the most beautiful stone, the one that, in their mind, like, okay, this is the very best, let's start with that one, so that each angle off of the stone would be true and square. If you took a crooked stone and started to build around it, you'd always be trying to adjust to keep it straight. But if you took a very perfect stone, then every stone you laid beside it necessarily would be straight. Now, this wouldn't have been a shocker to them. Where were they? They were in the temple. And he says that now a cornerstone has come. God has given us a cornerstone upon which we will build an abundant life. I'm not just the son of the owner. I am also the cornerstone. I am also your means of having an abundant and true life. A life in accordance with the good and kind father and owner. And so, friend, think of it this way. What are you building your life on? What's the thing that you measure everything by? Is it success? Like, how good is this because of how successful I feel? Is it your own reputation and accolade? Like, do you always, right now, do you feel underappreciated? Right now, like people should be honoring and, and recognizing you more. You feel that? Friend, that is a stumbling block. That is not a cornerstone. That is slavery. That is not sonship. And I want you to know those kinds of counterfeit ways of building a life will leave your life, did you hear the metaphor, in pieces. Friend, see the absurdity, the gracious, powerful absurdity of God's love that when we were at our worst, He sent His best. They were looking for a cornerstone that matched what they already loved. Right? They were looking for someone who was powerful, who would exercise His authority over the Romans and everyone else. And so they missed the man of sorrow. They were looking for a Lord who would boss them around and help them clean up their lives. And so they missed a lamb who came to sacrifice himself. They were looking for someone uh, amazingly attractive, powerful. And they missed the one that was despised and rejected by men, acquainted with grief, one from whom they would hide their faces, one who would be despised and not esteemed. They wanted the ruggedly handsome, strong, assertive, powerful, all the things that they thought of themselves. And so they rejected the one who didn't look like any of those things. Friend, see the absurd grace of God. They overlooked the man of sorrows, the one who was meek. They overlooked the friend of sinners. They overlooked the one who instead of coming to judge and destroy his enemies, goes to die in the place of his enemies. They missed the one who didn't measure up to the worldly standards of attraction and admiration. I don't say this lightly, but I do speak, I believe, the words of Jesus here. Jesus is the cornerstone, and you'll either be crushed by him, thinking you're the owner, or here's the absurd grace. You'll have a beautiful life built on him. This actually happened, you know this, the temple in 70 AD was destroyed. It was crushed. Every, every stone, completely destroyed. Strange thing that we celebrate today is that in that persecution and that destruction, the gospel was scattered to where now you and I, continents and languages away in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, are talking about this Jesus. This happened. This wasn't just a metaphor or an allegory. This actually happened such that, get this, and, and this, this is the powerful thing here, Jesus, the Son of God, came as the cornerstone upon which you and I can have abundant eternal life. Connect the dots. The rejected son in the parable, the rejected stone in Psalm 118, 
has now for us become glorious, marvelous, and precious in our eyes. The one who was rejected, cast out, and crucified is precious in our eyes. In just a moment, we're going to commemorate this powerful sacrifice by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so as we prepare to meet God himself at a table, recognize the paradox and the absurd grace that when we were at our worst, God gave his best. And we meet at a table, not to commemorate our own achievement, but to marvel at the sacrifice. To marvel. Can you, can you hear the language of this, of this Psalm 118? The Lord's doing is marvelous in our eyes. And I want to tell you, if you're not a, a repenting, baptized believer in Jesus, then, then communion will be just a silly, unsatisfying snack. It will. Uh, and so for that, I, I want to invite you to trust, believe in Jesus, trust in him as a worthy, as a worthy and powerful cornerstone. You might be wondering, how can I know that I can trust God? I want you to see the turn of phrase in the metaphor. The master is actually a father, and you can trust him because he demonstrated his care for his people, right? Like it's, the metaphor starts, and he's a businessman trying to be, trying to be pro, like, productive and profitable. And notice what he actually cares about is not the profits. He cares about the people. And he sends his son so that you can trust him. And so for you, maybe that will be what you need to profess today. But for the rest of us who have seen this absurd grace that when we were at our worst, God sent his son to lay down his life for us. All we can do, as we see here in verse 42, is marvel. Marvel. The one who was cast out and crucified. The one who was turned over and betrayed. For those of us who know how helpless and hopeless we are in our guilt, shame, and sin, we see the marvelous work of God. So I want to read to you from Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians about this very thing. And I want us to pray for just a moment as we prepare to receive this as a, a powerful act of faith. The Apostle Paul encourages this church in Corinth that they would pass on to one another what he has received from the Lord, namely, that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed and took bread, when this parable came to fruition, after he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance in me. And so a moment, we're going to stand together and sing, and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, there's going to be two different places to, that people are going to serve you the Lord's Supper. They're in the back two, uh, off to this side and this side. I believe there's a, a gluten-free option off to my right, I believe to your left. Just kind of stay to the right as, you're, as you exit the row you're on to make room for people coming and going. And something powerful will happen. You'll come to the table and someone will remind you of an absurd grace. That instead of exacting justice, the Father has sent His Son. And the bread symbolizes His broken body for your sin and for mine and said also then after they had taken of of the bread it says that they took the cup and jesus gave them a promise this cup is a new covenant in my blood not of your performance not of your achievement but of mine freely offered for you and so whenever you do this as often as you do it do this in remembrance of me whoever then therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner right think like an owner and not a steward, ultimately is guilty of drinking to their own condemnation rather than celebrating the owner who has provided everything we need by grace. So let's pray together. Let's prepare for just a moment. And then as we respond in faith, let's take part in singing, worshiping this king who has come and meeting him at the table. Jesus, thank you so much that you are the, you are the cornerstone. You are the one who even though was rejected, is now the basis for us to live a new and fruitful life. Thank you that you have come as the friend of sinners. Thank you that you have come in mercy. You have not come into this, into this vineyard to crush us and destroy us. You have sent your Son to demonstrate your care and love for us. And so in your own words, in your own way, would you, would you join me for just a few moments? Would you confess the ways that you see yourself as an owner? Would you confess even now the ways that you see yourself as an owner over your own life? 
ways that you do not want to live in accordance with God's goodness and his provisional grace. Would you confess those? Confess those sins. God, we regularly see ourselves as the owner. From Adam and Eve to the redemptive story of the Old Testament, we regularly throw off any reminder that we're not in charge and that we're not the owner. Thank you that when we were at our worst, trying to usurp the power of the king, you sent your best. And so now as we have brought our own admission of our undeserving nature, would you impress upon each of our hearts in this morning, in this entire room, the grace, the absurd grace that God would demonstrate his love by inviting us to a table where we would be met. Not a measuring table, but a banqueting table. Thank you that you meet us through the powerful and sacrificial work of Jesus. Might we now respond in faith to the absurd grace of sending your son to take our place. Jesus, thank you for this, and it's in your name we pray and receive this comfort. Amen.